The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Bible Forum. Uh, today we conclude our look at the movies, the forum goes to the flicks, and our talk today is The Greatest Movie of All Time, What Makes a Great Movie Legendary. And we're very pleased to have Ben McKechn here with us, and uh, some of us may not know Ben, you might have met Ben before on panel discussions that we've had, but in case you haven't met Ben, it'd be great to get Ben up and just ask him a couple of questions. So, Ben, make your way up, mate. I'll let you go on this side. Thank you. So, hey guys, thank you for coming in. My pleasure. Um, so, uh, what, what qualifies you to be talking about <coughs> movies, mate? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a great heckling already. Uh, <laughs> what qualifies me? So, yeah, since about the year 2000, I've been reviewing films on a full-time basis. So, I reviewed films, but also interviewed people and wrote articles about movies and. I'm from Adelaide, I used to work for a newspaper there full-time, then I moved to Sydney and I worked for a magazine called Empire, which is all devoted to movies. So based on all of that, that gives me the right to stand here and talk <laughs> to you us. about movies. <laughs> so we, are we right in assuming that you sort of just spend your time in the dark, just in front of a screen and, and occasionally emerge? Yeah. Um, I, I used to do that, I used to do that. So I'm actually now in my third year studying at Bible College over in Newtown. But before that, oh, yeah, you when I worked full times, I, I did often spend entire days in cinemas. Sure. Like people okay. actually do that. Where, and and well, I got paid to, so it was pretty good. But so you, just, you just have to buy one ticket? You just sort of stay? Oh, we don't, we don't, have, don't have to buy tickets. Okay. Uh, we, uh, we, had to, we were very blessed to be uh, getting in for free. So we'd have to go and free review movies and sometimes that could be three or four a day. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Has anyone ever done that? Watched three or four in a row? No. I, what? I... Really? <laughs> it's not that weird. <laughs> what is it? Okay. Like you should really go like go home. No, you can't do it today. But on the weekend, like try it. Just on Saturday, try watching three or four movies back to back. It's really quite. It's a great use of time. Okay. okay. <laughs> okay. I'll I'll to you. Right. It helps when you get paid to do it. So you alluded to the fact that you're not doing that full time now. So just tell us what you're up to. Yeah, so I'm about to uh, finish up my third year at Bible College. So a couple of years ago, I decided um, I'll quit my job at Empire working full time reviewing movies and go to um, a Bible College. The reason I did that is because I just thought. Uh, uh, I'm a Christian. Um, God could use me uh, as a Christian in some other capacity where I think I could more directly serve him and his purposes. Not that you can't do that in a workplace by any means, but for me personally, I thought that would be a great thing to do. Go and learn more about God, which I've done. Um, heaps more about Jesus and the Bible. That's excellent. And now next year, I'm really hoping to be someone who gets a job, <laughs> but is effective for Jesus in whatever that's going to be. I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to do well, next year. There's, there's a lot of baristas around town. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah, true. Well, it's great to have both now, you know, the background in movies and in theology. So we've got a theological critique of uh, Hollywood. So yeah. we look forward to hearing what you have to say, Ben. Uh, ben will speak for around 15, 20 minutes, something to that effect. And we welcome your comments and questions. You can send an SMS to the number there. Uh, you can jot it down on the bits of paper in your program or just raise your hand. So plenty of feedback will be welcome. Thanks, yeah. Ben. Thanks very much.
Okay. Uh, quick question to start off with. What is the greatest movie ever? Okay, I'm not hearing any responses. I'll tell you what the responses were this week on Facebook, on City Bible Forum's Facebook page. A number of people answered that question. They said movies like Rear Window, Empire Strikes Back, even The Notebook. Oh. Yeah, evidently it's not anyone in this room. Um, I'm going to have a bit more to say about The Notebook in a minute. Um, there, there was not one single answer. There was not one film voted by those people on Facebook, the greatest movie ever. I think if we looked, if anyone actually answered in this room, there'd be a different answer we would all have. So I think we haven't really established what the criteria is for greatest movie ever. Is it the movie that you think personally is the greatest movie ever? Or is it the movie that film critics and film lovers and filmmakers think is the greatest movie ever? So, for example, you could be the person who thinks no book is the greatest movie ever. You'd be really wrong to think that, but you could personally think that, right? So, but at the same time, you're also thinking, oh, but what about those movies like Citizen Kane and Chinatown and Casablanca and Godfather, all these kind of movies, aren't they meant to be the best movie ever? We haven't really established what the criteria is for deciding what is the greatest movie ever. Now, here at City Bible Forum, last couple of weeks, um, you guys might have been part of these talks. Um, there are a number of different talks given on the topic of movies and how they kind of converge with Christianity. We've heard about things like uh, resurrection and uh, forgiveness and redemption and how to find God in movies. That was a talks a lot to do with the meaning that can be found in movies today. I want to talk about the meaning that we give to movies, the meaning that we give to movies, the way we talk up movies and the... And I think that's actually got something really interesting to say about Christianity. When I was working at Empire, Empire Magazine released the 500 greatest movies ever list. 500 greatest movies ever list. That was about five years ago. This year, Empire's released the 301 greatest movies ever. And those two, di- those two lists are different. So same place, different list, including the number one film. Uh, five years ago, it was Empire Strikes Back. This year, no, sorry, other way around. Godfather 2 was five years ago. Empire Strikes Back is now the greatest movie ever, apparently. And that's just one outlet. You go online, do a quick search of greatest movie ever, go to reputable sites like Internet Movie Database, Rotten Tomatoes, whatever it might be. Different films turn up in different order of greatest movies ever. Which leads me to the conclusion that we cannot definitively crown what is the greatest movie ever. We just can't do it. But what we can do is talk about great movies. I've already mentioned a couple. You might be thinking some in your head already. 2001, Vertigo, Battleship Potemkin. There are all these movies that keep turning up on greatest movie ever lists. And I think the reason that these num- this group of movies do that is because they've shifted status significantly. These movies have gone from being great to being legendary. They've gone from great to being legendary. Now, putting this talk together, thinking about all of this stuff, I went into my cinematic clinic and I emerged from the darkness and discovered that among all of these movies, there's a lot of common elements. There's a lot of common elements of greatness. But I think what's of vital importance, and I really want to highlight this today, is the reaction that those elements receive in a movie. So I put that another way. The popularity of or acclaim for a movie is what elevates its status. As in a movie can't be great unless we endorse it as such. Now some of these common elements of greatness are pretty easy to see in movies. It could be a great director. Maybe it's a great story or great storytelling. uh, As in um, excellent editing or cinematography or whatever it might be. Maybe it's got a great cast or a great actor. Or it's just got that something special. 
could be a particular character, quotes, whatever it might be. But by having these elements of greatness doesn't mean your movie's going to be great. Uh, what's an example? Has anyone seen that movie Invictus? That Clint Eastwood movie? Clint Eastwood directed it. It's got Morgan Freeman in it. He's playing Nelson Mandela. Matt Damon's in it. It's got rugby, and it's not that great a movie. <laughs> it needs to be endorsed as great to endure as great. Now, to illustrate the point uh, quickly, I'll just uh, highlight a couple of movies that always turn up on greatest movie ever list to show how they're packaged together, these elements of greatness, into legendary form. Citizen Kane, released in 1941. Has anyone seen this film? Thank you very much. Does everyone else know why this movie is a legend? There are a couple of reasons. Um, The movie broke conventions of story structure, of genre, of cinematography. That movie was so far ahead of its time that it was a box office dud. That thing made no money at the box office. But it went on to be acclaimed by people across time. I mentioned an Alfred Hitchcock movie earlier, Rear Window. There's plenty of other Alfred Hitchcock movies that have risen to the status of legendary. I think Vertigo is probably his best one. I think it... I think it's the old... Like, actually, write this. If you're writing things down, write this down. This is the most movie reviewer thing I'm going to say today. This movie, Vertigo, is the ultimate encapsulation of Hitchcock's masterful crafting of psychologically disturbing entertainment. Thank you very much. That's right. I'll move on. The Godfather. That movie is a benchmark in gangster movies. Uh, there are uh, Oscar-winning performances in that film. That thing has gone on to be this uh, lingering portrait of honour among thieves. I'll quickly motor through some other ones. Look at the Matrix. That thing revolutionised uh, special effects, but also philosophical entertainment. Or the French classic Breathless. Anyone seen Breathless? Oh, man, do yourself a favour. <laughs> Bre- Bre- this movie casually revolutionised real fiction in the 60s. Or Pulp Fiction, which combined film geek and mainstream zing into a rare success of excess. That's more film we talk. Alright. By focusing on these, there are plenty of other examples I could have raised. I could have kept going, but I'll stop. By focusing on these, what I'm trying to dredge up is they've got these common elements of greatness, they've got some legendary status, but all of these movies, the way they've combined them is different. As in, there is no specific formula for creating a legendary movie. You can't leave today, go and write a script, get that movie made, release that movie, and it will be instantly legendary. It has to have greatness recognised. Now, on a professional basis, I'm a person who's been involved with plenty of conversations about legendary great movies. I don't know if you have done this, but what do you do when you're in a conversation with someone, you're talking about great, great movies, and you actually disagree? I'll give you a personal example. I actually don't think Gladiator is that great. Come at me afterwards with a question, like we can talk this through, I'm happy to. Or a movie like 2001, or this John Wayne Weston called The Searchers, or this Russian movie from the 60s, yeah, called Mirror, which apparently if you're a film lover you love, but it's not that good. But in those conversations, I can't deny that these movies are legendary. Like, I can't actually dispute that they've reached a certain level of respect and credence. Now, this is 2014. We live in Sydney. And I think Christianity is widely treated a bit like that kind of legendary great movie. As in, most people can agree that Christianity's got great elements, or elements that can be considered great. So it's like a great director, God, great story, and a story of everything, something special, this guy called Jesus, 
It's had disciples and followers. People have really talked it up. It's earned a certain influence and status and respect. And it's, had a, it's done that with a unique formula that's different to every other religion. But people still believe they can opt out, like it's a legendary great movie that they don't particularly like. You know, like what's so great about Christianity anyway? Is it just competing in a popularity contest with all the other religions? And doesn't my personal preference dictate how great it's going to be? So thinking about great movies and legendary great movies and what's so great about Christianity got me to this point of remembering there's a story in the New Testament in the Bible. There's an account of an early Christian leader in the first century and he's going to Athens. And this is recorded in the book of Acts. This is from chapter 17. And the, the church leader was Paul. He's the guy who wrote like the bulk of the New Testament. He went into first century Athens. He was in that society and he was pretty disturbed by what was going on there. Now you can see in your handout, this is the account that I'm talking about. And at verse 16 there, sentence 16, it says that the city was full of idols. So it seems that Athens back in the day was stuffed full of different kind of religions and gods, different forms of worship. Now Paul's reaction to this is disturbed reaction. Well, he went on to reason with Jews and God-fearing Greeks every day. So that's like the religious people of the time. He also went on to reason with those who happened to be in the marketplace which is like, seems like anyone in earshot Paul's just wanting to talk to about this. And what he went on to outline to them every day, we're told this in verse 18, he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So Paul's presenting good news while he's surrounded by all these idols in first century Athens. And I'm presuming back in the day in Athens that a lot of these idols were revered as great, that plenty of people talk them up as great. But Paul's not doing that. Instead, he's just trumpeting one man and his unique and world-changing coming back from the dead. And that's not some zombie movie trailer thing. Like, this was real. This actually happened. Now, the the final third of this chapter uh, of, of the book of Acts, it goes on to recount how Paul was then invited to further explain his good news. And he was invited to do that in this place called the Areopagus. That's how you pronounce that word, Areopagus. This place was the effective government of Roman Athens and its chief court. I had to get that out of a book. I didn't really know what it was, but that's what it was. It's kind of like the high court and parliament house, all kind of wrapped up into one. But it's also the place, a bit like City Bible Forum, it's the place to come and discuss and debate the big stuff. It's where you ask big questions and people like to think and talk. Because that's seemingly how Athens rolled back in the day. Sentence 21 tells us all the Athenians, all of them, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So Paul goes on to tell them the latest, and this doesn't involve him telling them that the various objects of their worship are equal, or like all their gods are valid or legitimate or all the same. He doesn't do that instead. He's in this Areopagus place and he highlights one altar. So I'm picturing that Areopagus a bit like, oh, this isn't quite correct, but you know Hogwarts and that massive dining room in Hogwarts in Harry Potter. If anyone doesn't know where I'm referencing Harry Potter, you know the movies and they've got the chandeliers and stuff. Anyway, forget the chandeliers. I'm just thinking about that room, massive room. Maybe the Areopagus is kind of like that if it had all these like altars and shrines and statues around the wall. So it's like this big place that's lined with all of these statue shrines. And they're indicating all these various gods. That's the kind of place that Paul's surrounded by. And he goes to this altar, 
and the, uh, the plaque underneath the altar. So in verse 23, we're told the plaque of this one particular altar says to an unknown God. I don't know what you're thinking, but what I'm thinking is that at this point, the Athenians are just covering their bases and like hedging their bets. Like maybe out of the scheme of every god ever, we've missed one, but we don't want to insult that god, so we're just going to give them this altar in case the god turns up later. Like, see, we've given you an altar to an unknown god. We just didn't know you. Well, Paul goes on to reveal to them who this unknown god is. This is pretty amazing stuff. You read in verse 23. He says to them, now what you worship is something unknown. I am going to proclaim to you the God, the God, who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And if you skip down to sentence 26, he goes on to say that this God of all determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. And God did this so that men, as in humanity, God did this so that humanity would seek him. I think uh, in, what did I say, it was 2014, we live in Sydney, it can be difficult to grasp the impact of these words that he's saying. But he's talking to a room full of people who believe in all kinds of different gods, but he's saying the one God that you don't know is the only real God. And not only that, he's the creator of everything, and not only that, he's in control of everything, and not only that, he sets the where and when of everyone. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to like hear about the oldie Athens and think we're talking about Sydney. I don't think I'm going out on a limb. There are so many beliefs and opinions and trends here. There are ways of worshipping all kinds of different stuff all the time. We pursue the latest ways of thinking, be it on, I don't know, diet or selfies or whatever it might be, it can make your head spin. And it can just seem as if Christianity is only one way of living among any which way anyone else justifies as a way to live. But what I found amazing about this passage is that Paul did not tell the Athenians that. That is not what he said. Instead, he said the thing about this unknown God who actually rules all is he is not just great because people say that he is. This God isn't just legendary because a combination of great religious elements were all joined together and people elevated to a particular status. God's great because God is great. He's the Lord, the ruler of heaven and earth of everything. And he's proved it. And he's proved it. If you look at uh, verses 30 to 31 on your handout, Paul lifts this only true God and the good news that he's been proclaiming earlier. He combines them all together by saying, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he's set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he's appointed. He's provided proof of this to everyone by raising him, that man, from the dead. Um, as I said earlier, it, like, it doesn't really matter if you don't, if you do or you don't love Susan Cain. It doesn't matter if you're going to go into bat for how great Raiders of the Lost Ark was or how uh, amazingly groundbreaking was Metropolis back in the 20s in that German science fiction film. Are you with me? Yeah, no? You should watch it, it's really good. But it doesn't matter if you watch that and you come out and go, it wasn't that good. No one can prove definitively what is the greatest movie ever. But God has proven his unique great status by raising this man from the dead. And the good news about Jesus and the resurrection 
That's what separates the one who truly rules, this great God, this one who truly rules and calls us to live his right way, separates that God from any other fake manufactured make-believe God you can think of. So if you want proof of God, if you're a person who's looking for proof of God, look at Jesus. Let's then finish today, because um, I don't have too much time to like go into more detail about all the amazing stuff that Paul said here. Nor do I have more time to uh, bore you, I mean interest you, with uh, this amazing history of great movies from across time. But what I thought I'd do to finish up is to address... I think there'll be two types of people here in the room, I'm, I'm presuming. I think there'll be two types of people. Um, there'll be those that have heard all this stuff before, but the movie stuff and the stuff from the Bible. You've heard all this stuff before, and then there's those who aren't so familiar with this information, especially with the things I've been saying, reading out from the Bible. Now, if you have heard all this Bible stuff before, and you decided that Jesus is the leader of your life, excellent. That's great. You, you really, I don't think you need me to expand more on the seriousness of repentance and judgment, the things that are alluded to in sentences 30 to 31. But maybe you've actually forgotten what's so great about Christianity. Maybe. maybe, Or maybe I'm just talking from my own personal experience of living in this city and being surrounded by all this stuff and, and thinking, oh man, like maybe I've just been lulled into like thinking Jesus is the best one, but maybe he's not that special. And, and what if I've been born in another country or my parents have been different or I went to a different school or maybe I just want to pick something else. Well, if that's how, how you feel, take this handout with you, read again the words of Paul, and reflect on the one true God. And be inspired and energized and excited by this God being the God. Now, for the other group of people who, like all this stuff might be going kind of going over your head, or you, know, you don't know so much about this, well, do you see how the people in Athens reacted when Paul first spoke to them in the first century about all this? If we look at verse 32. You can see the reactions to Jesus' resurrection. Well, it was divided. Reactions were divided in the Areopagus in Athens. And they were divided along the lines of ridicule or wanting to hear more. Ridicule, wanting to hear more. I'm thinking that's pretty much how you can go today. You can just go off into mockery and dismissal if you like or interest and investigation. Now, if you want to go into interest and investigation, which I highly recommend you do, where would you start with the investigation? Well, maybe you might want to start where Paul finished up, which is the proof that God is so great, that proof is in Jesus, this man that died and was resurrected. Because that is a massive, massive statement. That's an enormous claim. Again, we're living in 2014 Sydney. I'm sure all of us have actually heard all this before. Jesus died, rose again, ascended, all that kind of stuff. But do you think about how enormous that is? Because if it's actually true that Jesus did do that, it changes everything. As Paul said, what it indicates is massive. We're at City Bible Forum. Um, I'm sure that those who work for City Bible Forum afterwards will be able to give you a Bible if you don't have one to help you with this journey of investigating Jesus. The amazing stuff about Jesus was that before he died, he actually said he's going to die and he's going to be resurrected again. You can read that in the first couple of books of the New Testament. That's amazing. After he rose from the dead, before he ascended to heaven, he said amazing stuff like, 
in one of his one of the biographies of his life that said this is what he said after he rose from the dead after this man rose from the dead this is what is written about me in the books of the Old Testament Jesus is saying the Messiah the anointed saviour of the world it was written that the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations again this might be way more information than you can take into your head right now I appreciate that the point I'm trying to get to is that the proof that God is so great is in Jesus. What you can learn about Jesus is here in the Gospel accounts. And the amazing things that he said that this indicates has enormous ramifications for all of us. Like probably the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. If you really think through all the implications of that and what that means for us individually now, where it should point you to is the good news that Jesus is meaningful, not just filled with our meaning. And I hope all of us can find out just how truly great that is. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Ben. Now it's your time to uh, participate. We do have some time, which is wonderful. I've got a couple of questions that have come in. Uh, but uh, still time to text a few more. Uh, okay, a couple more coming in. Just uh, if you've got any handwritten ones. So I've got one here to kick us off, Ben. So unlike movies, you reckon Jesus is the greatest. How aren't you being a bigot? Hmm. Wow, that's a great question. Uh, I didn't use the words subjective or objective anywhere in the talk that I just gave, and I did that intentionally because I think we can bandy those words around a bit, and they also can sound a bit pompous and a, a little bit, uh, yeah, maybe pompous, I was thinking it was going to be, but uh, why I'd say I'm not a bigot by saying Jesus is the greatest is what I was trying to wrap up there at the end, is that uh, separate to whether I think Jesus is the greatest or not, there are clear indications that he is. So that status exists separate to me. So I'm a person responding to that news as opposed to um, uh, either creating that situation or trying to pursue it in a way that divides people. So um, whether you like it or not, the news about Jesus does divide people. I appreciate that. Um, but yeah, where I'd stand on it is I don't think you're bigoted by accepting a situation of objective truth that says this person is the greatest. Therefore, by definition, others aren't. Uh, I mean, that paints me into a particular corner that people might say is bigoted, but I, I think we make those kind of choice on all range of things where we select this and not that, and we wouldn't determine that's bigoted. I'm just arguing now for the case that this is objective as opposed to subjective, which I think makes a more powerful, persuasive case for going with Jesus. As opposed to your views about Gladiator, which are bigoted. But yeah. Yeah, my, my uh, views about Gladiator, Gladiator are uh, educated <laughs> and informed. And I don't know why people didn't recognise that film's just a soap opera with guys running around with like leather shorts on. And so you don't think it'll echo into eternity? I do not think okay. it will. No, I wish it would have, but it has already. And I can't <laughs> deny that it's reached that legendary status. Okay. But I hope to never watch it again. <laughs> Okay, a um, couple of questions here. Uh, death is the great intruder. Jesus overcame death and even raised others from the dead. Where did death come from and why is it here? 
Oh, well, it still might be above my pay grade, because as I said, I'm in third year at Bible College, and I'm about to graduate. Maybe after I graduate, I'll have all the amazing answers to these questions. That's a really good one. Uh, it's a contentious one. Uh, it, it really goes back to the first few books of the Bible, Genesis, um, which um, well, you guys, have, I'm not sure if you've read those or not, but the event termed the fall, and I'm sure you've all heard of Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden and um, being tempted. Um, and then how sin entered the world from that moment in time, and then how death is the, the wages of sin, as it's described in the New Testament letter from Paul, uh, that guy Paul, uh, in a letter from the Romans. So sin and death are all, all tied up. Um, the, the contention, though, is whether did death exist in the world as part of God's order of things before the fall happened, um, or was it just a consequence of sin? Um, so the question, of, what was the what was the point of the question? Uh, where, where did death come from? Where did death come from? Um, In light of Jesus overcoming death. Yeah. Um, so I'm not entirely sure where death came from. Um, uh, you might want to talk to some more learned colleagues from City Bible Forum about their thought through answers on this. But as far as uh, Jesus dealing with death, uh, we're told. Um, in the New Testament that uh, Jesus overcome it, therefore the consequences of sin have been dealt with because as I said, the wages of sin are death that's where it leads to this death this spiritual and physical death um, so uh, but the fact that we still have death in the world now uh, indicates that um, things haven't been brought to perfection which is what Jesus is like ushering in on behalf of God things haven't been brought to that perfection but that time's still coming which is when you talk about the second coming of Jesus and what that's going to bring in to the world. So that's a very garbled answer for death still exists and operates in this world um, mainly under God's control because he's bringing everything to perfection but it hasn't reached it yet. Okay. I should have just said that. So, yeah. <laughs> We've got a, a few more questions but just a light-hearted one to sort of segregate. More uh, play out of stuff. Do you, do you have a list of worst movies ever? Yeah, I do. Uh, the, 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 but I tend to just remember the, own, the, the main one which is uh, a movie called, <laughs> it really sounds bad to say this in polite company, but it's a movie called Freddy Got Fingered. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, has anyone seen it? You've seen it? Really? <laughs> and you were paid to do that? Um, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, so one of the best things about being a film reviewer is that you uh, get to uh, try to help people, like this lady in the front row, from avoiding making mistakes, and you can tell people how bad a movie is. Uh, that one has remained... I watched that movie made nine, eight, nine years ago, it still remains at the top of the list. So personally, I was just so affronted by the... It's just this insult to everything, pretty much, this movie. And it's allegedly a comedy. Oh, my goodness. You've maybe partially answered the next question. (laughs) Are you disillusioned as a reviewer by just how low the bar is set by most filmmakers, i.e. very basic humour, bad language, etc.? That's a really good question. Uh, I don't tend to subscribe to the idea... Like the from the broad one, the brushstroke idea that like Hollywood is, I was going to use a polite word, Hollywood's not that great, and all the stuff they churn out is rubbish. Because um, somewhat we're to blame for that. Which if you actually think that, well, stop going to see movies because people continue to do that, and they'll keep feeding you the same thing because you're going to go watch these movies. So if you're really opposed to them, don't do it. Um, the bar I think has diminished. It might be due to economic reasons, which is. The movies aren't just about art, they're also about commerce, and I, don't, and I don't think you should shoot them down for that, as in to make a buck out of a movie isn't the wrong thing. So if you want to just 
follow a formula and put this movie out there. Again, it goes back to market and all that kind of stuff. I mean, if you don't want to support that, well, don't support it, and if people continue, you're going to. So uh, I think there's a bit of chicken and egg going on with, with um, the quality of filmmaking. But, but overall, as a person who uh, went and watched... For a few years there, I watched every movie, pretty much every movie that came out. That can sap your will to live. That, that can <laughs> really... Like, uh, I could tell you the words of being a film reviewer, like, awful. Um, but so, some, so I, I agree with the sentiment of that uh, question that it can be discouraging to see really poorly made films. And I think the, how many movies are released all the time and with the consistency that they are, there are way more bad movies out there than you would like. But yeah, I would reject the kind of under, what I think is the underlying notion, which is like, oh, they were better back in the day. Like, they weren't always better back in the day. Like, you go back into the 40s and 50s and 60s, not every movie was amazing. Um, in the 20s, not every movie was amazing. And, and not even like non-English-speaking movies are amazing. There are actually bad French movies. <laughs> True. And German and Spanish, you know. So, um, it's a pop possible. <laughs> we might just hedge to. Yeah. Uh, there's a question yeah, to talk. Question: uh, About the moral values of films. So when film critics consider what's the greatest movie of all time or the great great movie of this year, do film critics consider the moral values of a film? No, but maybe they should. Um, uh, and it's a, that's another interesting question of trying to separate out what are your personal, as a film reviewer or a film audience member, what are your personal moral values and standings, and then what is the moral viewpoint standings of the movie, and what are the moral viewpoints and standings of a filmmaker. And all of those things may be completely different. And uh, you, for example, no, sorry, me, for example, I'm a Christian, so I've got a particular framework of beliefs. I can go and see a movie that completely contradicts what I think, but that movie could be the best movie of the year. Because as a movie and as a representation of this particular worldview, ethos, set of principles, might be amazing. And so um, they're not attempting to represent my moral viewpoint. They're attempting to represent some other moral viewpoint. And so as, as a film, I think we've got to first and foremost start as what is this film doing? Like as, take it as a film firstly, and then think about what kind of moral message is it sending, and you may vehemently object to that moral message. And I think it's great when people think about what are the underlying messages and themes coming through films, but I think at that point is where you're making um, a judgment based on your own morals in relation to theirs, uh, as opposed to just whether all movies should be built from the same moral framework. Because I think that's the only way you can adjudicate as a film critic on if the best movie <laughs> comes from a moral standpoint, you'd have to agree what the moral standpoint is. We might just... Uh, it's a few more questions. Apologies that yours won't be answered. Come and see Ben. But one last question here. Um, what... We're afraid of the unknown. What is it about Jesus that gives peace? That's a really good, really good answer. I think... What about Jesus gives peace? Uh, I think the fact that... Um, Jesus didn't exist in a vacuum or he didn't... It's not like we don't have any understanding of who Jesus was, what he did, what that was about and then what the implications of that. And uh, that's why it's worth investigating. If you haven't read them like in recent times, read the Gospel accounts of Jesus' life and read... A lot of the, the versions like my Bible has red text for Jesus. So maybe you just skip to those bits. Read the red text bits. They're not more important than the others. I'm just saying if you want to get to the Jesus bit, look at the red text bit. And the things that he said about himself, about those who follow him, about what that means, 
Like, it, um, well, I know for me, I, know, I presume other yeah, people who are Christian in the room would have found peace through that. Even the hard stuff that he says, but the way that he orders and makes sense of existence, of who we are in relation to God, and what that's going to look like for us now and into eternity, um, I think that shatters the unknown and brings the known into how you go about living today. And through that should come contentment and peace. It's not as easy as that. Um, um, I'm a pretty chilled out dude, but I can really yeah, get anxious and, you know, like, is Christianity the way forward, etc., etc. But going back to the words of Jesus, particularly as a starting point, and really looking at what that guy did, sorry, said, and then how that um, relates to what he did, I think that's not unknown. That's known, and that can bring us peace as people who uh, follow and believe and trust in him. Thank you very much, Ben. Thanks, Thank you. Thank you uh, for sharing with us, Ben, taking time out and being here. I'm not going to hold you very long, just a couple of things to draw your attention to. Uh, we have tonight um, a short course in Christianity uh, that Ian Powell will be leading. I think, as uh, Ben mentioned in his talk, there are different reactions to the message. Um, it may be that um, you feel this is all nonsense and you don't want to investigate further. It may be that you already believe all this about Jesus, but it may also be that you want to investigate further. And uh, hence we put this on on a regular basis and many people have benefited from it, uh, some in the room here today. So uh, I do encourage you, if you'd like to come along, uh, come tonight. If tonight's too short notice, it's still possible to come next week. It doesn't matter too much if you start in week two, uh, you'll be able to catch up on the homework. But come along, it's a four to five week investment with dinner, 6 to 8 p.m., down at the HSBC building, right next to the town hall train station, easy to get to and get home from. So uh, do consider. If you're interested in that, uh, just grab myself or Mark or Tor or Ian uh, in the, the stylish brown suede jacket there, and uh, we'll be happy to help you. Yeah, that's you, yeah. <laughs> okay, just on the next slide, I think, Mark. We're going to uh, change uh, tack a little. We're moving from the cinema to the laboratory. So next month, the month of August, we're looking at uh, the whole theme of science. And it'll be great to welcome Dr. Lewis Jones, an astrophysicist. Um, it's hard enough to say, let alone imagine what they do. So he's going to come and he's going to address this topic of why Richard Dawkins will not find God. So a bit of a provocative title. If you don't know who Richard Dawkins is, uh, he is the author of uh, very famous books about atheism, so an English man. So he'll, he'll be critiquing that position. So do come along. Um, this whole month, I think, will be very interesting to people in the city. So um, do us a favour, spread the word. It's always good to uh, get uh, references, word of mouth. So let others know about this great series coming up. And of course, uh, this series will be climaxed in a way by two events. One, a panel discussion we're going to have here with some scientists and also with Dr. John Lennox, Professor Lennox, at the Sydney Town Hall, looking at the whole question of can God and science mix, which will be on the 25th of August, the Monday night. So lots of uh, interesting things coming up in August. I hope you can uh, participate. Otherwise, have a great afternoon, and we'll see you next Wednesday. The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city, or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.